Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be continuing this morning our, our series we've been in for the last several weeks in Hebrews 4. And um, the, the premise of the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better than everyone and everything. And so the question that we've been coming back to is this. If Jesus is better than everyone and everything, is that enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? And um, the, the author of Hebrews is kind of making this case where in every chapter he said, he started off saying, Jesus is better than angels, and Jesus is better than Moses and the prophets, and Jesus is better than the, than the temple. And in chapter 4, he, he, he starts talking about rest. And it feels like he kind of throws a curveball. Why is he talking about um, why is he talking about rest all of a sudden? But what what he's saying in this passage uh, is is something that if we really take it seriously, it's going to sound initially outlandish to us. And it's this: that the only way you will experience true rest is if you know Jesus, and if He is enough for you. So would you stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter four? If you're following in one of the Blue Church Bibles, you can find Hebrews chapter 4 on page 1002. Listen as we read um, Hebrews chapter 4. I know that this passage is, uh, it's, just gonna, it's just confusing <laughs> as we read it. Let me just say that that's okay. And we're going to spend the next few minutes exploring it together. Let's hear God's word to us. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of, the, of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are tired people. And God, we long for rest. God, we are tired because life is hard. We are tired because um, we live in a world where people created in your image are attacked in their places of worship. God, we live in a world where uh, mass bombings are a reality. 
and we're tired. God, we're tired from uh, trying to make relationships work that just seem like a struggle. We're tired because we want to raise our kids and we love them and life is hard. And so, God, I pray that you would give us rest. Would you, in these next few moments, help us to understand the beauty of the rest that Jesus holds out to us. And I pray that as as we understand uh, what this passage means, that we would actually experience and, 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 as it says here, enter in to this rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, you probably saw in the last week the... The news about the lottery, and in fact, if, if you were he, if you, even if you didn't know about the lottery, but you were at church last week, Robert told you that the lottery uh, total was like, what was it, like $1.6 billion or something like that. Um, and I, I don't know how that strikes you. Um, I, I feel like it's impossible for me to hear that there's a lottery out there that is worth $1.6 billion dollars and not at some point find myself kind of daydreaming into what that would be like, right? Whether maybe it's just a 10-minute car ride, but by the time I get where I'm going, I've just been, like, I have a, I have a whole new life, you know, at the, at the end of that daydream. Um, what would I do, and what's the first thing that I would buy? And just for a minute imagining how great life could be if only I was a person who bought lottery tickets. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, the funny thing about that is that th- there's that reality, huge, huge jackpot. And yet at the same time, it brings out these stories that, and you, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, like there are support groups for lottery winners. Um, there, if you, you can Google some form of this, like is winning the lottery a curse? And um, like, it's, it, it, well, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is like you win the lottery. Statistically, almost half of lottery winners are broke in less than five years. Um, studies show that winning the lottery doesn't make you happier or healthier. Uh, there are these horror stories of people who've won the lottery and then like former friends, former boyfriends, girlfriends show up expecting some piece of the prize, like kill you if you don't give it to them. Um, it's, it's insanity, right? And yet most of us, I think, would say, like, I could handle it, right? <laughs> I mean, I know statistically it's a bad idea to win the lottery, but I could do it right. I know. Like, just look, give me a shot at it, right? And uh, we, it's easy for us to live in that place where it's like, I know most people can't do this, but I can do it, right? I mean, I, I can get this. I can, I'd be just fine. Why wouldn't we want to win that? Why wouldn't we want to win that jackpot? Um, today we're talking about rest, and I think some of that same dynamic is in play when it comes to rest, because um, what, what Hebrews is telling us, I mean, think about it like this. Um, when it comes to playing the lottery, is more money good? Yes, I'm a fan of more money. Okay, when it comes to rest, is rest a good thing? Yes, I'm a fan of rest. I would like more of it in my life. I've got this. I know how to do this. And I just want to plead with you on the front end of this that maybe it's a little bit more complicated than we think. Um, because what I really want to plead with you is this. Can we just for a moment try to listen to what the Bible is saying? Because here's the reality for us. We live in a time and a place as a culture where we experience more leisure and luxury than... Like, kings and queens of the past would be utterly shocked to experience, like, what our daily lives look like, okay? We we have more access to leisure, to things, to stuff, Um, and at the same time, if I ask you, how are you doing, what do you say? I'm busy. I'm hectic. Life feels frantic. I'm trying, like, you would not believe my life. I'm trying to stay on top of it all. How is it possible that both of those two things go together? And so I want to plead with you. Can we just listen to the Bible? Because maybe we're not quite the experts on rest that we think we are. Maybe there's something a little bit more nuanced here at work. Hebrews addresses people 
like us. People have shown an interest in Jesus, but like we're curious about other things too. Uh, Jesus is interesting, but maybe we need more. Maybe we need more. And can we consider here that maybe the Bible actually has something true that we need to hear? Here in chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus offers his weary people rest. And what I, I want to be clear that he is, he is not saying that in the sense of that there is this like state of mind called rest that you can achieve. He is offering you real rest. He is offering um, ultimate eternal rest. I mean, it's fascinating. The, the New Testament never talks about uh, Christians dying. The New Testament talks about believers as people who have fallen asleep. And it's this euphemism to say that, that there is a, there's an ultimate rest that Jesus has for his people. And that that is our hope. And yet he is also promising that rest, uh, a rest that you can enjoy now, a rest that you can enjoy today, even in this moment, that you can enjoy tomorrow and next week. It's real. Did you notice in this passage that he talks about, he uses this weird phrase, he talks about entering into rest. Like it's this gate we could walk through. <laughs> I don't know why this image keeps popping into my mind, but it's like a beer garden. It's a place that you could see and not experience, but you could actually walk into it and then you would be entering into that rest. What does that mean? It, it means that it's possible to, to know that there is such a thing as real rest and yet not experience it. Um, and there's this warning in this passage. Three times in this chapter, two times in chapter three. So in, in chapters three and four, the author has quoted Psalm 95 uh, five times. Psalm 95 I began the service with, but it, it starts off really rosy, but the end is like this warning, this warning. And so what's happening in Psalm 95 is it, there's this warning that, it, that is saying to, um, to God's people, it, it's talking about the exodus. And it's talking about the people who came out of slavery, the Israelites, as they came out of slavery in Egypt. And they entered into, well, they were supposed to enter into the promised land. They grumbled against God. And so they wandered through the wilderness. And what, what Psalm 95 is saying is that it's possible for you to have experienced the goodness of God and yet harden your heart against him. That there are these people who saw miracles and they complained that God wasn't enough. And Hebrews 4 is looking at us weary, tired people and it's telling us to find rest. And I just want to plead with you, listen to what it's saying here. Because this is real. And let's not listen to this and, and think like we do about the lottery. Like, yeah, but I could beat the odds on this one. Okay, three things this passage tells us about rest. And the first thing I want you to see is this. Why do we need rest? Why do we need to rest? Doesn't that seem like a really stupid question? And yet, what's the answer? <laughs> um, I read this article several months ago that kind of has just rattled around in my head. The headline, I Googled it this morning just to make sure this is true, and there's a bunch of articles on this. But scientists don't know why we need to sleep. Isn't that crazy? Like, we do it every day. We dedicate a significant portion of our time to rest, um, to sleep. We know that if we don't get enough sleep, we are a wreck. We know that we need it. You don't need to be convinced that sleep is a good thing. And yet, we have no idea why we need it. Why do we need to sleep? Um, what I'm getting at here is this. We are really bad at knowing what will make us happy. We are not very good at knowing what will help us rest. What some of us think, um, like, what are some things that, when you picture in your mind, like, we're going to talk about rest. What would it look like to rest? Two things that I think come to mind. The first thing is, like, rest is just not doing things. Like, we just are we're doing things, and then we stop. We stop activity, and that's rest, right? The second image that it comes to mind when we think about rest, like, deep rest, is a thatched roof on a cottage or a little cabana on the end of a pier 
you know, surrounded by the crystal blue waters of the South Pacific with a little <laughs> drink, with a little umbrella in it. Uh, like that would be restful, right? Okay, what's the problem with that? It'll take you two days to get there and two days to get back. And you will complain bitterly about how awful it was. That's the short-term problem. The long-term problem is that is a one-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for most of us, right? So think about what that means. It means you can work your entire life to accomplish this one week of rest. And two days after you're back, you're like, man, I'm tired. Um... We think of rest as luxury. We think of rest as just ceasing activity, just stop working and you're resting. And so we go, 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 and then we occasionally just drop everything and splurge or just cut out of everything. We have these brief moments of rest and then we come back and we're exhausted again and we can't figure out why we're so tired. It's a little bit like this. Um, we know that we need about seven to eight hours of sleep a night, you know? Like, everybody knows that. Well, how much sleep do you need? About seven to eight hours, right? Um, but if you were to get eight one-hour naps every day, you would be an utter wreck. Uh, you, would, you would just be shattered because what we know is that it takes about 90 minutes to get into deep REM sleep, the kind of sleep that we need to actually be rejuvenated. And this sort of like, go, 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 work yourself ragged, and then just take a week off. It's like getting a cat nap when what you need is a good night's sleep. What we need is deep REM sleep for our souls, and we are really bad at knowing what will bring us that kind of rest. I, I was reading this uh, a book this week, and it, it quoted this uh, high-ranking military official, Colonel Didi Hafil. Didi Hafil. She's a colonel in the Air Force, and um, it was talking about she was presenting an award to a uh, somebody in a squadron of airmen, and. At the end of the ceremony, she took questions, and one brave airman, airman raised his hand and said, Ma'am, when is the pace of our operations ever going to slow down? Because we are all tired. It's a brave guy to ask the colonel that, right? And um, she thought about it for a second, and, um, and, and she said, she, she wrote, there's about 40 people there, and the colonel said, uh, would you raise your hand if you're exhausted? And in this room of, you know, I keep wanting to say soldiers, it's airmen, but you understand the concept. Like, tough people, raise your hand if you're exhausted. Every hand in the room goes up, right? And then she kind of went on a limb because she said she had just been reading this article, in the, I think in the Harvard Business Review, about some research that had been done in the corporate world where researchers had gone in and studied people who say that they are exhausted. And this research indicated that um, loneliness is often a factor in our exhaustion. And um, the, the, do you understand that the, we, what we feel is exhausted? Somebody says, how are you doing? <sighs> Busy. But the cause is loneliness. And, and, what she, and so she then said, again, to 40 airmen who have all just said, I'm exhausted, raise your hand if you're lonely. Now, that's a lot harder thing to admit to, especially in public. And she said that uh, about a third of the people in the room raised their hand and said, I'm lonely. And, and so the point is this. If, if, the, if you think the problem is that you're exhausted, what's the, what's the solution? Take some time off. Like, take a week off. And so you stop your work and you go into a place where you're probably more socially isolated. And if the real problem is that you feel disconnected and you respond to your sense of busyness by saying, I'm just going to check out for a little while, you're actually exacerbating the problem instead of, instead of solving it. And that's why we have to understand why we really need rest because thinking that we can just go, 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 and then occasionally stop everything is like taking a cat nap when what we need is deep REM sleep. And Isaiah 57 describes uh, 
people who do not build their lives on the living and true God in this way. It says, they are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt, and there is no rest for them. We are restless not not because we're so darn busy, but we are restless because we, whoa, (laughs) are living like a duck, (laughs) trying to keep it cool on the surface, but kicking like crazy where nobody can see. We need rest because there is this inner angst in each of us uh, that feels like, like Isaiah 57 says, like the chaotic tossing of the sea. There's this internal churn uh, that says, I haven't done enough. I haven't finished. I haven't yet done enough. It really, what, what we're really saying is, I don't think that I am enough. I don't think that I am enough. And our busyness is just a symptom. It's not a cause. All of us are looking for a place of security. I think what every one of us wants ultimately is somebody who knows us to look us in the eye and say, I know you, I love you, I'm proud of you, I care about you, you make me happy, you are enough, I'm satisfied with you. And we are restless because in each one of us deep down is, is the suspicion that we're not enough. And it's exacerbated in the world that we live in because think about this, we live in a culture that is designed to tell us that we are never enough. Our economy would collapse if for one year we just decided that we don't need to buy anything other than what we need. Like think about this, how many people in this room would lose your job if nobody bought a house or a car or entertainment or just, you know, like our economy would collapse if we just bought food for a year. We live in a world that's designed, like we're designed to feel like you're never enough. And so we live with this inner churning. Why is it so hard to unplug? Um, Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to unplug? Because there's always more to do. I've never done enough. There's always more to do. I've never finished. I never get to the point where I've done enough or I am enough. And so we live with this constant churning like the tossing sea and we try to keep it at bay. We try to outrun it or we try to distract ourselves from it and yet it's always there. And every once in a while we take this short little nap like that's going to solve the problem. And we wake up, we come back to work, we take the week off, we take the weekend off, we come back and that chaos is still there that says you're not enough. You're not enough. And so if we're ever going to truly rest, yes, of course we have to stop doing things. But there's something deeper that has to happen. And so the second thing that you've got to see in this passage is where rest comes from. We'll only find rest, REM rest for our souls if we can calm that inner churning. And so you've got to see where rest comes from. Did you notice that in this passage twice the writer talks about the gospel? In verse 2, he says, For good news came to us just as to them. The them in this passage is those people that came out of Egypt and slavery that he's referring to in Psalm 95 that did not enter God's rest. It's the gospel there, the good news. And then verse 6 Again, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter rest because of disobedience. That phrase, good news, uh, that's what gospel means. This, um, we, we talk about the gospel here, around here, all the time. The word gospel just means good news. Um, the gospel is the story of God's work in our world. And so this is what he's saying. Look at verse 4. It says, for he has spoken, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Okay, what is he talking about? What he's saying is if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the universe. He creates all that there is. And then on the seventh day, it said God was finished with all of his work, and he saw that it was very good, and he rested. Okay, why did God rest after creating the cosmos? Was it because he was like chugging along at a good pace, but... You know, eventually creating the planets, it just took it out of him. God needed to take the weekend off. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that God looks at all that he has made, 
and it was good, but it was, it was complete. You know what it's like to finish something and to kind of take a step back and say, yes, this is good. Or like to um, go on a hike and you get to the peak and you're like, yes, it's good. It is complete. It is enough. That's what it's talking about here. God looks at what he had made and said it is enough, it is finished. It's not just barely enough, but it is sufficient, it's complete. That's what rest is. So where does that rest come from? Well, this passage is telling us that that rest is the product of the gospel. Rest is not something, we have this idea that like, if I work enough, I can actually get to the point where I can rest. This passage is telling us that the opposite is true. Rest is the starting point because it's what, it's the product of what God does in your life. And because he has calmed that inner churning in your life, then you can go out into the world and do good work. Here's the options before you. Either you can rest by finishing everything you have to do to utter completion, utter satisfaction to your bosses, your spouses, yours, like that's an option for you and then you can rest. I don't know about you, but when I look at my phone, there are so many badges of like numbers, you know, unreturned calls, texts. Like I got so many of those red numbers on my phone. And part of me, like, and you feel this too. Like we, I say that and even right now I'm like, yeah, aren't I? I'm so important. Right? Like, I'm so busy. People need me. Like, it's this badge of honor, but inside there's this churn that says, you can never get it done. And so you can't really rest. So that's one option. Check off all of those things. And then you can rest. Or you can experience true rest because the gospel is true. Through the good news that you are enough, because of what God has done. The gospel is the good news that you are enough, not because of what you have done, but because there is somebody else who finished his work. What what the gospel tells us is it starts with creation, that God created everything and then he finished it and he was done and it was good and he rested. But um, even though he invited us to live in his rest, we rebelled and said, no, that's not enough. I want to do it myself. And after we rebelled, God came again in the flesh in Jesus, and he, he lived the perfect life. He checked every single box. And then he goes to the cross, and he suffers in my place, in your place. And the final words out of his mouth before he died were, it is finished. It's done. Jesus says, I came to do this, I have finished what I came to do. If you take that even a step further, after he's the resurrection, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, it says in Hebrews, he ascended into heaven and he sat down. Why? Because he is done. His work is done. And when we put our trust and our faith and our hope in him, only then will we experience what it's like to really rest. Because the gospel comes to us, not with this message of self-esteem that says, like, you just gotta believe in yourself little soldier you're good enough now the gospel comes and says you are enough because you have a savior who finished his work and you are enough in his sight he loves you and that that is such good news i know initially most of us would prefer to say no i I would prefer to do it myself but it is such good news that you are enough not because of what you've done, but because of some, what somebody else has done. I, I heard a friend said it like this. The gospel is that you don't have intrinsic value, but you have extrinsic value. And what that means is this. What, to have intrinsic value is what we all want. Uh, intr- intrinsic value is the idea that my value originates within myself. And extrinsic value is the idea that I have value because of something outside of myself. So my friend Ricky Jones used this uh, illustration. He he said, um, I think it was his niece or somebody had lost 
like the diamond out of her engagement ring and she'd been married for a long time and you know the prong got hit or whatever and the the big diamond fell out and she lost it and for weeks they couldn't find they looked everywhere couldn't find it until one day her husband was pulling into the parking lot at work and gets out of his car and sees the diamond there on the ground in his parking spot like five weeks later you pick it up and you polish it off it's good as new it's probably been run over 50 times why because a diamond has intrinsic value ricky jones said if you'd been run over 50 times nobody would want you <laughs> right not even your spouse why because you don't have intrinsic value your spouse would not want your 50 times run over body um, because your worth comes from something outside of yourself I mean, think about it like this. My kids draw me pictures all the time. They're doing it right now. And they bring these pictures, and I love them. And you look at them, and they're like, this is not particularly special artwork here, right? But I love it. Why? It's because it was created for me by somebody who loves me. The, the value of my children's artwork is not because of anything inherent in it. It's because of something outside of it. It's because of the cost, the love that is associated with it. And this is the gospel. Look at verses 14 and following. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What that saying is this. You have value because you have a Savior who loves you. And it is his love for you that gives you value. Your life is valuable because you have been purchased at an enormous cost. Your life has value because you are deeply loved. It talks about the high priest, right? Jesus, our high priest. And we're going to talk more about this, but a, the, a priest is somebody who mediates between you and God. And saying your life has value, not intrinsic in who you are, but extrinsic. And that is such good news because it means you can't lose it. It's something that has already been done. You can rest because your worth isn't based on like keeping your figure as you get older. Or your worth is not based on you've had a good run lately in business, but you got to hold it together and eventually old age or death will take it from you. Your worth, that is such good news. My worth is not based on something that I can ruin. It's based on something outside of myself. I was talking to somebody this last week. Uh, a, a guy said, hey, uh, can I get together? I want to talk to you about work-life balance. And I said, that's a thing that I'm a, an expert at, so I would be happy to talk to you <laughs> about work-life balance. And I, you know, I'm talking about what's going on, and he says, you know, I go to work, and my wife is always just frustrated that I work too much and that I give my best time and my best energy to, to, to my work and not to my, not to my family or not to my marriage. And he talked about this for a while. I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I said, what do you think the problem is? And he said, I think the problem is that she's afraid I don't love her enough. And so I said, so do you think that one more hour with her a day or 10 more hours with her a day is going to solve that problem? He said, no, of course not. And I said, then what are you going to do? And he said, you know, when I married her, I stood in front of our friends and family. And I wasn't pretending when I said, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I will love you forever. I said, that's what you should tell her. Isn't that beautiful? It's not, you know, more or less time that's going to make a difference. But she will never feel like she is enough 
until she hears it from her husband and ultimately from her Savior. That's how, that's where rest comes from. But finally, the third thing we need to see is this, um, how do you actually enter into God's rest? You know, that, that phrase of like, rest as a gate we can walk through. How do we actually do that? And um, in verse 11, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, that seems like a strange way to put things, doesn't it? You gotta work really hard to rest. What he's saying is that rest is not something that's just gonna happen. And of course, resting involves stopping doing the things that you do. Like, don't work. Like, stop working if you're gonna rest. But it involves efforts and it involves intentionality if you're gonna enjoy the rest that God has for you. It won't just happen. You may get a cat nap by running yourself ragged and then stopping. Um, I remember uh, a while ago, I think we had had a couple of kids, two, three kids, and we had some close friends that were pregnant with their first child, and I remember thinking back to those blissful days, like even, uh, like, and, and thinking like, I wish I could like go back and store up the sleep, you know? The thing that stinks about that is that, like, it's gone in a day. No matter how much sleep you could ever stockpile, the next day, it's gone. Um, you might get a cat nap by running yourself ragged and then taking a day or a week or a month or a year off. But to get true REM rest, gospel rest, you have to strive to enter it, which means uh, you can see that it's there and not enjoy it. So how do you enter God's rest? Well, verse 6 says about these former people who came out of slavery in Egypt. It says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, enter into God's rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. They failed to enter into God's rest because of disobedience. Now, that can sound like if you're going to enter God's rest, if God is going to give you rest, you'd better start obeying. <laughs> you'd better stockpile a whole bunch of obedience. But that's not what it's saying. How can we enter God's rest? Well, three, three things. And I, I mean, I want to encourage you, write this down, um, text it to yourself. But there are three, um, let me say this, simple but not easy things that you can do to rest. And the first is you need to believe the gospel. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. It is those who have believed the gospel that enter God's rest. Um, you know, uh, what does that mean? You. you what I just said, that, that God created the world and then he rested. You need to believe that that was for you. That he loves you. And that he created a good world and then he stood back and admired it and said, this is good and that he did that, not just generally, but that he did that for you. And you need to believe that Jesus, when Jesus lived, he did it for you that his life was lived for you. And you need to believe that when Jesus died and he said, it is finished, he was saying that for you. You've got to believe it, not just that it happened, but you've got to believe that it happened for you because it's true. If you're going to rest, you've got to believe the gospel. There is a lot of talk about the relationship of what we believe and how that affects what we do. And... Um, you know, in, in, I think in some circles, that, you know, there's books and internet debates and, um, you know, kind of this idea that, hey, you know, it, Christianity, yeah, sure, it's about what you believe, but the, the real work is, is getting out and doing stuff in the world. And, and um, you know, there are people that are hurting. Uh, this world is broken. And so, yes, of course, believe in Jesus, but we've got to get out there and fix it. And it's true that there is a lot to do. 
It's absolutely true. But in Christianity, the believing always comes first. It is belief that leads to action. And if you don't believe me, I will prove it to you because the next two things I'm going to tell you are impossible to do. Well, one of them is impossible to do if you don't believe the gospel. And the other one you can do, but it won't work if you don't believe the gospel. And they are, um, well, the, the second thing is this. Okay, so the first thing is that you've got to believe the gospel. Uh, that is the only thing that will quiet that inner churn that says, I am not enough. The second thing you've got to do is you have got to rehearse. You've got to rehearse it through the weekly celebration of God's grace. Um, Christians refer to this weekly practice of worship and rest as the Lord's Day. God put it in the Ten Commandments, um, which if you think about it, what it means is, is this. Um, God is saying that a failure to rest, a failure to carve out one day a week as a day of rest, is as destructive to you and to our world as murder, adultery, lying, theft. Do you believe that? A day of rest every week where we gather for worship and we cease from our work. So uh, the Jewish people in the Old Testament were known for keeping the Sabbath. And it's easy for us to look back and say, well, they were really legalistic about that. But what we know is this. If you don't put it on the calendar, it does not happen. And you can put a weekly recurring event on your calendar that says the Lord's Day. And then when somebody says, hey, can you do this on Sunday? You can say no, because there's already something on the calendar that day. Um, in the New Testament, Christians began worshiping on Sunday, on the day of the resurrection. But the pattern of resting and of, of gathering each day or each week, one day, for corporate uh, worship and rest remains in the New Testament. I mean, it says this in verse nine: there there remains a rest for the people of God. Uh, of course, you have to stop working to rest. But we have to worship because we have to be... Worship is a weekly reminder that the gospel is true. And that God has come and done something to stop that inner churn in your heart that says you're never enough. Worship has to be communal because you can't trust yourself. We have to work this out in community. Um, when I've just said, you know, you have to believe the gospel, I'm not talking about... You just have to... Um, like believe this information that's out there. We need this regular reminder because it leaks out. And we live in a world, like I said earlier, that is designed to tell us that you will never do or be enough. And so you have to have this weekly opportunity to come back and remind it that, no, in Christ you are enough. Not because of what you have done, not a little self-esteem boost, but because Jesus is a good Savior and he is enough. We need this weekly reminder because we cannot trust ourselves. I mean, I just said a whole lot of stuff, and if we just walk out and never think about it again, we have, to, we have to talk about this together. We have to unpack this. We have to be willing to look at each other and say, I need your input. I can't figure out why I'm so exhausted. You need the input of other people. This has to be communal because Christianity is not a spectator sport. But it's also got to be communal because uh, rest is something that has to move you beyond yourself. And your perfectly executed vacation, even in its best case, is all about you. And coming into worship reminds us each individually that my preferences aren't the most important thing. And I've got to figure out how to get along with people uh, that I wouldn't get along with or I wouldn't maybe choose to associate with outside of the church. And it's as we worship together that God is glorified and we are lifted beyond ourselves and we find rest. The final thing you have to do, and again, you cannot do this. It's impossible to do this if you don't believe the gospel. And I can't believe I'm about to say this in public because it's going to make it sound like I live in the 1800s. But if you're going to rest, you cannot harden your heart. 
Do not harden your heart. We should not take it lightly that five times in these two chapters, the author of this book writes to us and says, if you hear God's voice today, don't harden your heart. It's so easy to think that hardening your heart means this sucks and I'm out. That is not what hardening your heart looks like. There's another place in the New Testament where the Bible talks about hardening your heart, like looking at yourself in the mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like. And uh, many of us, I expect at this point, are thinking something like, hey, this rest thing sounds great, but I just can't do it. Like, you don't, my life is such that, you know, I've got, I have to work. I cannot carve out one day in seven. Or, uh, you know, my kids' activities, I'm doing the best I can. And I want to say that I hear you. I love you. And I'm not saying this to judge you, but that is what hardening your heart looks like. That is what hardening your heart looks like. It's, it's, it's looking at what God is saying clearly and saying, yeah, but no, I don't think that's going to work for me. And so I'm going to go out and continue to work this plan that I fully acknowledge is not working for me. That's what hardening our hearts looks like. I heard a story um, a while ago about uh, this group of uh, people, uh, this tour of like 100 people that went to like uh, visit the Amish, you know, country or whatever in, in like, was it Lancaster, Pennsylvania? And um, they, they got this opportunity to talk to a, an Amish man and somebody in the group um, asked, asked the Amish man, he said, what's the difference between what you believe and what we believe? And I don't know if this was like a church group, but I think they were from the South, and I think you know, the implication was sort of like, I don't know that much about like, the distinctives of Amish theology, but what's the difference between like, what you Amish people believe and what us normal Christian people believe? And the Amish man said, um, how many of you would agree that television brings a negative uh, influence into your home. And this group of, you know, 100 Southern, probably older people, like everybody raised their hand. And he said, now how many of you are gonna go home and get rid of your television? And everybody put their hand down. And the Amish man said, that's the difference between what you believe and what we believe. And you know, if we were keeping score, I think you would have to say Amish man one, old Southern people zero. Um, now, I don't care, I mean, that much about the TV thing, but that's what hardening your heart looks like. It's looking and saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but no, I'm just going to keep doing my plan that doesn't actually work. Eugene Peterson, who passed away this week, I came across this quote this week. He said, if we do not regularly quit work for one day a week, we are taking ourselves far too seriously. Look, I know that there are some of us that have to work on Sundays. Firefighters, police officers, doctors, nurses. But if what you're saying is, I gotta get to 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 hours this week, and the only time I've got for that is Sunday morning, then I would humbly say you are taking yourself way too seriously. And that's what hardening your heart looks like. So that's fun to say. <laughs> Let me close with this. Um, Jim Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, was a, uh, a, a pastor and a theologian. Uh, not, you know, probably super well-known, but um, had written many books, fairly influential pastor um, in some circles, and, um, you know, probably midlife, late midlife, got a cancer diagnosis, and he died six weeks later. And so, obviously, he wasn't expecting that and was in the middle of several projects, and so when he got that cancer diagnosis, he got together his kind of personal assistant, and they charted off all of these uh, these projects that they were working on and what can we get done here. And um, his, his assistant 
this man talked about uh, getting to a point where he called him Jim. He said, Jim um, just looked at me and said, I'm done. And his assistant was trying to kind of motivate him and say, no, Jim, like, you got all these loose ends that you want to tie up, get tied up. Let's just, let's just work a little bit longer. And James Boyce said, no, my work is done. The time has come for me to lay down my labor. An assistant said, but what about everything you wanted me to tie up? And he said, I lay those loose ends in the hands of Jesus, and I will trust him to work them out. That is only possible in light of the gospel. You have a Savior who loves you, who has finished his work in order to show you that you are enough. And you need to be reminded of that regularly. That's the only thing that will allow us to ever do more than just catnap and find deep soul REM sleep and rest. Let's pray. God, I just want to pray again this morning that you, in your uh, power and gentleness and providence, would help us not to harden our hearts. God, I don't know why this strikes me uh, in this way, but I'm just terrified at the thought that I might be a person who reads your word and would stand up and try to explain it to somebody, to people. And that I might then walk away and ignore what it says. And so, God, we need, I need to be reminded weekly that the gospel is true and we have to work this out in community we cannot do this on our own God would you help us to be people who would maybe just be willing to say okay my plan isn't working and so I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to try to take your word at face value I'm going to believe the gospel. I'm going to commit to regularly rehearsing the gospel. And God, would you not allow us to harden our hearts? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.